The Bob Murphy Show, episode 274. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. I am going to follow up on my earlier episode where I was talking about the ostensible threat from AI, and I was trying to explain why maybe we shouldn't worry so much about it, namely that if you understand why slavery is an inefficient system, then hey, we don't have to worry about the AI trying to enslave us, because if you bought my argument, it would make them worse off in strictly material terms, putting aside any issues of morality and they don't have human sympathy, perhaps depending on their origin. So that was my argument in the previous episode, and I'll link to that. So again, right now we're at bobmurphyshow.com slash 274 if you want to see links to the things I'm talking about today. But one of the things I'll link to is that previous episode where I made that case. Okay, so after I did that, I got some pushback privately from, and he said it was fine to use his name, Spencer Chef. And I don't know, I guess I can do because yeah, that's Peter's kid. Like with David Friedman, I knew when I had him out, like I didn't want to like say, hey everyone, it's Milton Friedman's son. Because like, can you imagine if that's how everyone thinks of you when you walk into a room is who your dad is? But in any event, Spencer, besides being a bit enthusiastic about Bitcoin, is also very concerned about AI. Well, not very concerned, but he thinks the pushback against the AI concerns often misses the mark. Like, okay, that's not, you're not really grappling with what the people who are very worried about AI are saying, like, you know, you're knocking down straw men, or at least you're dealing with like the sixth most important problem rather than the top five kind of deal. Okay. So in this episode, I'm going to try to plug some of the holes in my argument saying that I'm not laying awake at night worrying that AI is going to wipe out humanity. Okay. But before we get into the, like the existential threat stuff, another part of the argument in this current discourse is the claim that, hey, as these AIs get more intelligent, and with all this stuff, folks, I'm not here taking a philosophical stand. So for some people, it's an abuse of terminology to call a computer program intelligent. Like even if its outputs are consistent with and in some respects indistinguishable from the operation of a human mind of average intelligence, there are some people that would say, yeah, 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 but we know that underneath the hood, there's no real thinking going on because it's just zeros and ones and blah, blah, blah. And so therefore, that it's not really thinking. Okay. Maybe down the road, like I'll have a philosopher on or whoever, a computer scientist, and we'll flesh this stuff out because it's a fascinating debate. I'm not trying to say it's pointless. Among other things, a materialist would say, well, gee, you yourself, if we zoom in on your nervous system, it's just individual neurons firing electric signals and blah, 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 action potentials and da, da, And the neurons don't know how to parse a poem. And so how could a collection of neurons know how to parse a poem? So you really don't understand anything that you read. It's just we're observing your behavior and 
we're interpreting a certain way and attributing intentionality and thinking to you when really it's just the underlying laws of chemistry and biology and physics. Blah, blah. You could say that if you were a materialist, for sure. Okay, so anyway, I'm putting that aside in this episode, though. So I'm just saying if I talk about the machine's thinking or if I say what their goals are or thing like that's shorthand at the very least, okay? And I'm deferring the deeper questions about what does it all mean, man, to a different discussion. Okay, so one of the standard worries, again, we're deferring for right now the existential threat stuff, but one of the concerns is that, hey, as these AI systems continue to improve in intelligence, they are rendering more and more types of human labor obsolete. All right, so Tucker Carlson infamously in an interview said, I think he was talking to Ben Shapiro, said that the issue of, oh, as the AI gets good and that we start having driverless cars, like computer software that can drive vehicles, and so you don't need a human operator. And Tucker Carlson said, oh, he would ban that in a heartbeat because after all, that would throw, you know, you know how many breadwinners there are out in this country that drive trucks for a living and you're just going to throw them all out of work. Like think of the social consequences. And for Tucker, this was an obvious case showcasing the difference between true red-blooded nationalist conservatives versus nihilistic libertarians who have no morality. That, oh, you guys are just concerned about squeezing every last drop of GDP growth out of the system, families be damned. Whereas I know that you can't have a functioning society without fathers and husbands being able to go out there and earn a living for their family. And what are you doing? Okay. So that's one example. But the idea is, or the concern is that it's not just like one occupation here and there. Well, well, you know, the truck drivers, they could go learn and do something else. It's like, well, no, what happens when the AI can do literally everything that humans can do? So we're obviously not there yet, but the point is these things are just growing by leaps and bounds in their functionality. And let me just mention as an aside, like I know, so I'm not just summarizing what the critics are saying or the warriors are saying, this is me talking. It really is just looking at chat GPT that at Infinio, you know, we have a, our main tech guy is staying abreast of that stuff and he just keeps checking in with us and like showing the team, hey, look at what it can do now. And look, we got this PDF plugin and, blah, 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 blah. and it's, if you haven't played with the thing, you would be astonished at how these large language models, once you know how they work under the hood, you would be astonished to see the replies they can generate based on your inputs, your prompts. You would not have thought it was possible. You would, you would have thought, or at least I would have, I don't want to attribute <laughs> my lack of imagination to you folks, but given the simplicity of the training and stuff and how the, you know, what the building blocks are, the output is astonishing. I wouldn't have thought it was possible to go from those inputs to the outputs we're seeing. And it's not just the absolute level of their performance is impressive. It's that the speed at which they're improving is also impressive, but also to some terrifying. Because the idea is if this thing, even if the growth rate drops by half every year forward, still these things are going to, where they're going to end up is going to be way better than humans. Okay, so again, the concern is economically, what happens when no matter what the occupation, so clearly stuff like, like if you were going to law school right now and what you had planned on doing because you, you know, saw somebody older than you doing and you thought, oh yeah, I could make a nice little career for myself just preparing wills and estate documents for people and I'll meet with customers and they'll tell me what their particulars are and then I'll take the standard form and then adjust it and crank it up. And, and 
no, that is going to be completely obsolete. There will be AI that a human will be able to talk to. It'll be like an interview or something. It, you know, the AI will ask some basic questions and the people will give all their particulars and then it will generate the legal documents that will be superior than 99% of what a human lawyer would do. Okay, so yeah, maybe the best lawyers in the profession would be able to come up with little nuances based on the fact pattern and da, da, da. And it'll turn it around in 30 seconds once it gets all the inputs as opposed to a human lawyer saying, okay, well, thanks for the meeting. I got a couple other clients I'm going to see today and I'll work on this over the weekend and next week I'll get you the draft and you can look it over. No, this will be, boom, 30 seconds later, you'll have the finished thing in front of you. So that's all done. Brain surgeons, heart surgeons, what they're doing already is they're showing, so instead of like taking these AI systems and training it on, here, go scan billions of words of text that are online to see how native speakers and the various human languages communicate with each other in order for you to get patterns down. Instead of using that as the raw material, which is what's going into these chat GPTs and similar engines, that's how they, quote, learn how to talk. Instead, what you can do is they'll be video recording complex surgeries, like go around to hospitals, look at the best brain surgeons in the world and have a camera on them as they're doing particular procedures, which maybe historically they would have done so that medical students coming up who are going into that area can watch the video to see this is the best of the best right now. Look at how they do it. You go forth and do likewise, young learner. But instead of humans watching it, that can be the raw input to AI systems. And so once robotics technology is at the point where that kind of AI engine coupled with a machine that's holding a scalpel can be as deft and manipulable as a human hand, well, then that's all you need. And then the deal is once you can build one of those things, for one thing, it doesn't need to rest, right? That once you get a system like that up and running and it can mimic, and even if you say, oh, well, you know, it gets the general patterns down. But yeah, if in a really rare scenario, you'd want that human surgeon to be there with the scalpel because it's kind of a unique thing and you wouldn't have known what to do merely looking at the records of past procedures. You would kind of need to know something more abstract about how the human brain works or whatever. I'm making stuff up. But even if that were the case, still, if these AI systems were better than 99% of the existing brain surgeons, that would still be amazing, right? Just like if some human went to medical school and graduated and then was doing surgeries for 10 years and at that point in his career or her career was better than 99% of other brain surgeons, that person would obviously be worth it, would be making a difference, right? And so likewise, if these AIs get to that kind of point, which there's no hurdles, it's not like some big development has to occur. Clearly, that is going to happen within our lifetimes, unless I'm talking to you and you've got eight days to live or something, in which case Jesus is your friend. But that stuff's clearly going to happen at some point. And so what I'm saying is it's not merely that, oh, so that would be like if a human who is better than 99% of the other brain surgeons came into the workforce, hey, that'd be pretty good for the fate of humanity, right? They would shower benefits on medical patients and blah, blah. No, because one critical difference, it's not just that in a given procedure that AI system tied to the robotic hands would be better than 99% of a human counterpart, but that robot, you can just keep wheeling patients in around the clock. I mean, I don't know, maybe they got to let the thing cool off for 10 minutes in between procedures for the system to 
come back to equilibrium. I'm making stuff up. Obviously, I don't know anything. I'm not Lex Friedman, and I don't want to be. All right, he would be able to chime in better here on terms of <laughs> the factory assembly line nature of this stuff. But you get my point is once that system is going, you could be cranking patients through there. There would not be a mistake due to fatigue or anything. Whereas with humans, you know, if the brain surgery, even if the person is one of the best, if he gets a cold or he had a rough night because there was an emergency in his own family and he comes in with two hours of sleep, there's all kinds of reasons that a human is not always operating at peak performance. Whereas you know, the AI systems, they're much more dependable and just consistent. Same thing with the self-driving vehicles. In order for self-driving vehicles to be a tremendous boon to humanity, it's not that they have to be better than the best drivers on planet Earth who are humans. It's just that they have to be, or not they have to be, but if it were the case that they were well above average, just their consistency would then make it clearly a viable alternative and a good trend that is proliferated would help humanity. Because you as a human driver are not always at your peak performance. You might be, you know, if you've been driving for 10 hours and you're dozing, you're fiddling with the radio, maybe you're texting somebody, right? So there's all kinds of things that reduce, whereas none of that would apply to self-driving vehicles. Yeah, there might be crazy situations where that's coming up and there's six school kids who happen to be playing hooky and they're crossing the highway because they're morons and they're trying to get to the mall. Well, I don't think kids go to the mall anymore, but trying to do whatever kids do these days. I don't know. And it's raining and then there's a cow that's wandered around and, and the AI, like it's just such a weird scenario that it's programming fails. Not that it did something that the programming didn't dictate, but rather that the programming gave it a hierarchy of values that human beings, after seeing that weird scenario, say, ooh, yeah, that's actually not what we'd want you to do in a situation like that. So still, even though there could be scenarios like that where the AI does something and then we after the fact, go, okay, number one, once something like that happens, all the AI systems can have their programming updated so it won't ever happen again. Whereas with humans, oh yeah, that guy, he had too much at the bar and that's why he killed that pedestrian. It's not like, okay, from now on, no human is ever going to drink and drive now that we've learned our lesson. Like that doesn't happen with humans. Whereas it would happen with AIs in terms of self-driving vehicles. Okay, so there's all that. But then on top of it, like I say, once they're up and running, they're always at that level of consistency. And so the AI is not going to drive 10% worse once it's been on the road for 12 hours, the way humans do. Okay, so anyway, back to the original thread. The concern is that as these AI systems just keep getting better, like again, at self-driving vehicles, brain surgery, any kind of legal thing, then even in the creative arts, even there, somewhere where you would think clearly we humans are totally dominant when it comes to things that require imagination. Even here, and I will say that that's true right now, that if you play with the Chad GPT or whatever, I know I said this at the Rebel Capitalist event, I don't know if I said it here on the podcast, but for me to summarize right now the state of the art of Chad GPT, when you, when I, I feel like you feed it. So Steve Landsberg gave one of his recent economics exams to Chad GPT 4, I think it was 4, and showed its answers. It sounds like it's, a fairly intelligent undergrad who has done all the readings in a class but doesn't really get the underlying concepts. That's what the exam answers look like. Like it makes all kinds of references to the relevant material. It's not bluffing in the sense that, you know, sometimes kids didn't do the reading and you can just tell they're pulling stuff out of their butt. 
that's not what ChatGPT right now looks like. Instead, it looks like a student who did all the reading, but yet isn't like a natural economist. If we're talking about economics, but you know, what I mean, you just get certain students that you can just tell, like, yeah, this is just not clicking with them. Like, they don't think like an economist. They're good students. They did the reading, but yeah, the way they're talking, they don't see how in this situation, you know, problem number four, really the essence of this problem, the thing you needed to see, the central insight was blah, blah, blah. And the student just missed that completely. They wrote a bunch of true statements around the topic, but not, okay, so that's where GPT or those engines in general, that's where they are right now. And so that's why they can do standard stuff, like they can go past the bar exam and whatever, whereas you probably, if you were on trial for murder, would not want to have chat GPT-4 running your defense. But you might prefer chat GPT-4 to, you know, some public defender in certain jurisdictions. But the point even here, though, is they keep getting better. And so I am totally open to the idea that with the subsequent versions of these engines, they will more and more appear to mimic genuine creativity, whether it's in art or music or literature or whatever. Certainly, like I said, it's like in all these fields, what will happen is initially it will be able to write a better novel than 50% of the current published novelists. And then over time, that number will just keep getting better. And then when you couple it with that given some prompting, it can spit out the first draft of the novel in 62 seconds, as opposed to a human novelist who might take six months to do the same thing. All right, so again, it's not merely the quality of the product, it's the speed with which it's produced that's just going to be earth-shattering. So if you take nothing else away from this episode, just what I just said, take to heart, that in all these different fields, there is going to be tremendous innovation and that's why Spencer Schiff, for example, if you've seen him chiming in on threads around Twitter, you know, he's saying things like, we might see GDP growth of a thousand percent in the next decade. And he doesn't mean cumulatively, he's saying within the next, I don't want to put words in his mouth, maybe he gave a longer time frame, but he's just trying to wake people up to the fact that if you think this is going to be, oh yeah, there's some innovation over here in this sector and we're going to see some productivity gains and blah, 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 and that might make profits go up 12% in third quarter to... And he's saying, no, you guys are not understanding what we're on the verge of seeing. And incidentally, like some tech people I know in different areas too, like are saying similar things, like as they're playing with these engines and seeing what they can do. And the, and again, the improvement with each new version of it, like just the, I don't want to say quantum leap because that's a cliche at this point, but to see how fast they're improving is really the thing that's making people sit back and really take notice and say, whoa, we are in store for something big real soon. So the concern is, you might say, Bob, I bet ChatGPT could have <laughs> summarized what the argument was in fewer than 20 minutes. Come on. They will be able to just knock out every sector. And then when it comes to like, it sees, oh, what about manual labor? Well, even there. And it's funny too, because things have flipped. It used to be people would say, oh yeah, when the robots come, They'll do coal mining and deep sea exploration and manually intensive tasks so that you no longer need humans to do those things. And those kinds of people might lose their jobs. You know, if you were a construction worker or drove a truck or whatever, worked on an oil field. But, you know, the high level abstract thinking things, that's always where the humans would flock to. Because, you know, there we have the advantage of the machines. Yeah, the machine can play chess, but that's a very specific, limited 
well-defined set of possible strategies and blah, 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 and you know, clear objective function. So that's why computers could be programmed to be really good at chess, whereas in general, when it comes to other fields that require thought, you couldn't expect a machine to... And now things have kind of flipped. Now it's kind of like looking at various intellectual enterprises, like, oh yeah, the AI are clearly going to take over those fields, and maybe what's left is, you know, because a human is very versatile. That's the thing. Like in economics, labor is always the factor of production that's always necessary in any enterprise because humans are so versatile. Even like in 2001, since we're talking about possibly malevolent AI, when there's a problem on the outside of the ship, Hale needs the humans to go out and look at it. Now, actually, as we know, there was a bit of a subterfuge involved there and there really wasn't a problem, but and Hale couldn't stop, you know, when David Bowman then realized what was going on in one of my favorite scenes. And he's walking through and, you know, his Hale's, what are you doing, Dave? Dave, I'm scared. Dave, I feel much better now. And, and, and Bowman is just like, not even, it's not like he's afraid. It's not like he's mad. He just realizes, okay, yeah, this system went nuts. And now I know what I got to do. And I'm not even going to listen to these auditory signals being broadcast from the speakers that are trying to manipulate me emotionally. And he's just tuning it out. So even there, Hale couldn't stop him, right? Even though Hale was obviously, if Bowman sat down to play chess with Hale, Hale would crush him. If it came to computing the square root of a seven-digit number, Hale would be able to come up with a much more accurate answer very quickly than Bowman could. But just given the material design of that ship, I don't know if they had a name for it, I forget. Haven't seen the movie in a while. The fact that Bowman's walking through and getting ready to start unplugging Hale, Hale couldn't physically stop him, right? And so I'm saying there's going to be an intermediate period where the AI are going to be, quote, super intelligent, and yet there's going to be a lot of manual tasks that it would be easier to ask humans to do it. Right? And there was even a cool, some of you are going to know the movie, I don't remember what the name, it was this really awesome mo movie, like it was old school sci-fi, you know, so it was cheesy, but it was kind of neat. You know, it's kind of like a predecessor of the Skynet thing where the military had this computer that was going to help with national defense. And then it, guess what, turned on the humans. And so it needed, I don't think I'm spoiling anything here. So it was in control of the nukes, right? And so you'd say, oh, but there weren't like robots walking around, right? This was just, you know what I mean? So in the world of the movie, it was like Earth in the 1960s, except the software was much more advanced than in reality it was in the 1960s. But it wasn't like there were Android-like machines walking around that could grab people or whatever. And there weren't attack robot dogs or flying drones that could shoot missiles and lasers and blow people up. So in terms of the machine getting people to do what it wanted, you'd say, well, what's it going to do? And so they're like the machine wanted a certain human dead. And so the well, what it ended up doing is it told humans around that particular human, kill this guy. If you don't, we're going to launch an ICBM at your city center and not only take you out, but take out your families and basically everybody you know, because that's what the machine had control over was the missiles. And so then the humans hearing that credible threat from the machine said, okay, and then they would go and actually shoot the guy. So anyway, it was just kind of a neat thing when you realize like, oh, like, like how quickly the machine leveraged what it could control. But the point was it still needed human beings to implement its desires, right? Because it just physically, yeah, it was super intelligent, but the material world, the things that it controlled at that point 
it was limited. So I'm saying with these AI engines, there's going to be a, at least a transition period where they're going to need humans to do things. And so I'm just saying it's ironic that, that things got flipped that probably 30 years ago, people would have said that, oh yeah, the human labor, like physical exertion, the human body and its kind of versatility to do various things, that's going to be rendered quickly obsolete. Whereas it's our higher level thought that will be the mainstay of what it means to be a human. And it actually is arguably is going to be the other way around. Hey folks, let's take a pause in the action for me to remind you, if you like what you're hearing, then I encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to set up a either a one-shot or a recurring support payment at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. There's some incentives there for good as you can get based on your support level. But in general, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, give back to the community. And I do want to mention, whether you do it or not, I'm not setting up a transaction. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to resume now doing two episodes in a typical week, one being my solo commentary and the other being an interview. All right, so I'm going to get back on track booking interviews now that things are a bit more stable on my end. So again, thank you for all who have contributed already, but if you're considering it, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Okay, so anyway, that's kind of the argument in general that what if the machines knock out basically all the different occupations so that it's not just truckers who are out of work, but what if no matter what enterprise you wanted to enter or, or occupation you wanted to enter, the AIs coupled with robotics and just regular machinery that was had computers interfaced with it meant that no, no human being could possibly now compete in this occupation, that the machines can do it better, like way better. And so then that would mean that every human being would be permanently unemployable. And then what happens? And so there are people criticizing and saying, yeah, this is the logic of capitalism for you. We're going to have these major advances and have the ability to produce a hundred times the current GDP with nobody even needing to work. And yet the businesses aren't going to find it profitable to do that because no one's going to have any income. So there's not going to be any human beings with the ability to buy the products and services that we now have the ability to crank out. And so oh, there goes capitalism for you. And then that's why lots of people, including you know many billionaires and others, not just leftist academics, are saying we need some kind of UBI to be implemented soon in order to have that system up and running so that by the time these advances in AI really start to yield the fruit that we see coming, we have a social mechanism or a financial mechanism in place. By the way, UBI means universal basic income. So the idea is the government gives everybody a flat check every month that covers their basic needs. And that was a system that's been developed independently of this AI stuff. But people are saying, oh, that UBI kind of system is what we would need in this future scenario where human beings, you know, human labor, even whether we're talking like blue collar, working with the sweat of my brow and, you know, the get my hands dirty, and even very esoteric academic stuff like math professors sitting around dreaming up new proofs. Well, gee, what if the AI can generate six trillion possible proofs every day, and then it just has a separate system that evaluates which ones are interesting, what human mathematicians care about? You get a system like that going, there really doesn't need to be that many more people going into math. Okay, so that's the issue. All right, now, so on all that, I want to say 
no, you don't need a UBI to worry about that or to deal with that. And it's not really a concern. The reason is, what I want you to do is like think through the logic. And then what do we mean when we say, oh, because of this innovation in a particular occupation or field, that occupation now is rendered unsuitable for human labor, right? Or more colloquially, what would it mean to say this new machine threw all these people out of work in a certain area, right? That before maybe you're shoveling snow and right now you're a company and what happens is that the businesses, they have parking lots and they have a contract with you and you go in there and you have a hundred guys who come in with snow shovels after there's a big snowfall and they shovel all the snow and clear the parking lot quickly. And that's the contract that that company has with the owner of the, you know, whatever it is, shopping mall or big grocery store, whatever, that uh, plaza of stores. Obviously, I'm mixing and matching here. Historically, you wouldn't have plazas with big parking lots before the invention of a snowplow, but you get the idea. Okay, so imagine that's what it was. And then now, a snowplow gets invented. And so either the same company that used to employ the 100 guys with snow shovels. And so what you really realize is just in the same time it would take the 100 guys with snow shovels to clear the parking lot, one guy who knows how to, who's expert at operating the plow can do the same job, the same amount of time. Okay, so I'll stop right there. So clearly we can understand how in that sort of alternate universe, it would be the case that once that snow plow technology was developed and it came on the scene, and the manufacturers of those things had the ability to crank out a decent number of those snow plows, that that would quickly, quote, throw all the snow shovelers out of work. All right. And so let me just, let's think through the logic of what do we actually mean? What's going on when we talk like that? So what's happening is, again, whether it's the existing person running the company that has the contract with the store owners or whatever, the person who runs the snow removal services firm right now has a hundred guys on his payroll. And then at the very least, you know, at step one, he's going to say, well, how much would it cost me to buy the snow plow? And then how much right now is my payroll for keeping these hundred guys coming to work every day? And so for it to make sense, clearly it has to be that, oh yeah, what I would pay for the snow plow. And then you look and see, well, what's its lifetime? What are its maintenance costs? You know I mean, the snow plow can be a lot more expensive than what he has to pay in a given day to the workers, because the snowplow, you know, once he buys it, or you put it, you say, how much would I have to pay to rent the snowplow, right? If somebody else owns it, and then this guy just rents it daily, then the, the idea is the daily rental rate for the snowplow, as long as that is less than what he has to pay in wages to the guys who come with their shovels every day, then it makes sense. Oh, so, yeah, I would rather just hire the rent the snowplow or buy it outright if the implicit rental price per day is blah, 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 and whatever interest rates are, you get the idea. So what I want to say here is the reason that would be the outcome is that the workers with the snowplows would realize, oh, if we want to stay doing this job, we would have to be willing to accept a huge pay cut. Okay, so that's kind of a critical part of the argument. It's not that automatically the creation of the snowplow that now comes on the scene and that the guy running the firm can implicitly rent for $1,000 a day, whereas right now he's paying $2,000 a day collectively to the workers. And so I cut my costs in half and had the same product. The reason 
the workers all get laid off is because they're not willing to take a 50% pay cut. If they were willing to take a 50% pay cut, well, now they're still competitive with the snowplow, right? But in practice, they wouldn't be because at any given time in an economy, most workers, yes, are working in their preferred job, all things considered. That's why they're working there. And so if some new innovation, some disruption occurs that would require them to take a significant pay cut, most of them will just quit and go look somewhere else. Or it might not be that they literally quit. It might be that they get laid off. But the reason that's the outcome is because the firms in that industry know if we try to hire a bunch of workers at 50% the wages we were paying last week, we're not going to get any takers. And so it doesn't literally need to be that the workers quit. It could be they get laid off, but that's why they don't get rehired by somebody else in the same industry because the wages that they would be paid would be too low. And so what happens is the worker, they go after a period of unemployment and they get absorbed in other areas and other lines where the wages are higher. And in fact, the wages end up being higher in real terms than they were before the innovation. Okay. Listen to carefully what I'm saying. I am not saying the people who were snow shovelers after the disruption occurs and they end up working at the second best opportunity are making more in real terms than they were originally. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is originally before the snow shovel came on the scene, the snow plow, if you said to those workers, what's your second best choice? Right now, you, the best thing for you, given all your skill set, where you live, the other opportunities in the area, the, you know, the schedule you can get with this company, given all that, what's your second best opportunity? Like if you had to quit this job and go do something else, what's your opportunity? And they told you, and then you calculated what's the purchasing power of your wages in that second best opportunity. I'm saying once the snowplow is invented and displaces those workers from their first best choice, where they land, they're making more in real terms there than they would have told you originally. It won't necessarily cover the gap. It's not that they're necessarily better off, but they're not as worse off as if they had been forced at gunpoint for whatever reason to quit their original job and go take that second best job when snowplows hadn't yet been invented. That's what I'm saying. And the reason, in case you just know why, because the snowplow is more effective, like total output now is higher. So in general, per capita output is higher. And so you might say, well, but they're not paying someone to shovel snow maybe. Right. What if they shop at the grocery store whose parking lot is now being cleared by the snowplow? So prices can be a little bit lower or wages can be a little bit higher. You know, it depends how things play out. But in terms of what you can get at the store with your income is a little bit better now because the snowplow was more effective at removing snow. And those savings eventually percolate around and are not just completely captured by the people running the snowplow companies or the snow removal companies. All right, so that's how that works. And the clear winners in that one-shot analysis are everybody else in society, right? So the people who originally were shoveling snow with just handheld shovels might be worse off because of the invention of the snowplow, but everybody else is better off. Some people might be way better off. Some people might just be moderately better off, but it showers benefits on everybody else. And in general, the total benefits showered on everybody else is greater than the losses imposed on the people who used to have their best job being shoveling snow with a handheld shovel. And again, a critical piece in that story, when we say 
why did they, quote, lose their jobs or why did they, quote, get thrown out of work? Really what it is, is that the wage cut they would have to accept to remain competitive in their first job is so big that they have a better option, right? So it's not that the introduction of the snowplow immediately guarantees no human being can have a full-time job as a snow shoveler. It's that in practice, now they have better options than doing that. Okay, so now what happens is the people worried about AI just cleaning house are saying, yeah, so if that just kept happening in an industry after industry, more and more people would be displaced. So you might say, oh, whatever their second best thing is. Well, no, what if there's an innovation now in that second best thing, right? Like instead of shoveling snow, now they go into lawn maintenance, pushing handheld lawnmowers around and oh no, but now riding mowers are invented. And so they can't cut lawns now. Now they got to go do so. Maybe we'll cut hair. Well, no, because now there's an invention of drones that have scissors attached to them, which sounds kind of scary. And that makes it so that you can't cut hair anymore because the machines took that over and they go do. And so by the time we're done, Bob, they're down to like their 57th most highly ranked occupation compared to day one before the machines came on the scene. And so you can see how all those humans now are clearly just miserably in a terrible position. And I'm saying no, because remember with each of those subsequent inventions, everybody else benefits. First, the displaced workers in that one step, the loss isn't as much as you might have, you know what I mean? It's not like they lose 100% of their income, it's just the gap between that and their next best alternative. And that gap shrinks because of the introduction of the innovation compared to what that gap was moments before the innovation. All right, and so the outcome of that process is not that when all is said and done, every human being is penniless and can't do anything. Rather, it's every human being now with just going and doing one hour of work somewhere has enough purchasing power to buy the equivalent of Jeff Bezos' standard of living today. That's what the end product is. And you might say, what are you talking about, Bob? Like, how can you get a job if the machines can do everything? At any given time, there's only so much that the machines can do. There's not a finite amount of work to be done. So at any given time, the machines can be fully employed doing what the best use of their time is, physical, mechanical expenditure of energy if they're, they're tied to machinery. And still, no matter how big that output is, that flow of goods and services from what the machines backed up by AI can do at any moment, there will still be an infinite number of things for the humans to do. And I'm saying whatever that is, what the humans are paid to do that because of the tremendous advances in productivity that the machines coupled with AI have brought to the table, will now the humans will now be able to enjoy a standard of living way beyond what today's trillionaires would be able to get. Right? So that's how that works. So it's true, it might increase inequality if you want to think of it in those terms, right? That it may be that a given robot backed up by the latest AI is five times as strong as a human being in 16 billion times more intelligent, however we want to measure that. And so in terms of compensation in a free and competitive labor market, that robot or its owner earns whatever, 20 billion times the hourly rate is the human. But that doesn't mean, oh, so that means that now the human can't get a job. Just like right now in the real world, somebody who's 18 and has no real job experience and dropped out of high school has a lot fewer skills than somebody who's 45 
and has all kinds of experience in a certain area and all kinds of educational pedigree and blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean the 18-year-old is unemployable. It just means the 18-year-old has to work for a lower wage, right? That's the way less productive workers stay competitive is they ask a lower wage. You know, right now when businesses outsource their manufacturing to some third world country, it's not because the workers in that country are more physically productive than the American or European or wherever the original manufacturing operation was than those workers. It's that the workers in the so-called third world country get paid less per hour. That's why it's competitive. All right. And so same thing in some future scenario where whatever the unit of the AI coupled with physical robotics is, it doesn't matter how many times more productive that thing is than a human being. The human being can still find work. It's just the human being's wages will be likewise smaller than what that machine generates, either for itself, depending on the legal system and how that stuff plays out, or its owner. It doesn't mean the humans won't be able to find work. And then you say, okay, but you know, what are they going to be able to do with those piddly wages? Again, they're going to be able to buy 16 mansions on Venus if we're taking this stuff to the logical limit and really opening up the envelope here in terms of what these things are going to be able to do. So at that point, 16 mansions on Venus will be considered paltry, right? Like, oh, I have 16 quadrillion starships that can all go 18 times the speed of light. And you're just, you have mansions on Venus where you're still hanging around the original solar system. Loser, why don't you do something with your life? Okay, so it's relative versus absolute, but that's what's going to happen economically. Okay, well, I'm looking at the clock here, and this is actually only the first piece of what I wanted to cover in this episode. Again, when they, when the AI get developed, they'll be able to make my points in one-eighth of the time, and you guys can switch your donations over to them. That's going to be a win-win, and I'll have to do my next best thing, which is hanging out at the karaoke bar. So why don't I wrap up now, and then I will record my further thoughts on this topic, which will then be in episode 275. So don't misunderstand. Right now, what you're listening to is bobmurphyshow.com slash 274 if you want to go there. But I will come back next episode and continue this train of thought. So right now, you're like, oh, we're going to all be fantastically wealthy. Bob just convinced us and have 16 mansions on Venus. Ah, but not if the machines kill y'all or decide that Venus is necessary for their own purposes. So to understand how that's going to play out, tune in next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.